Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn more about a bill that would provide indigenous people with historical connections to present-day Colorado access to in-state tuition. We'll also hear about upcoming negotiations over the management of the Colorado River and who's at that negotiating table. And we speak with Democratic Representative Joe Neguse about recently introduced legislation which would aim to protect public lands and grow the outdoor recreation economy. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Earlier this week, the Senate passed a $1.9 trillion bill to provide financial relief to Americans impacted by the pandemic. The bill is now headed back to the U.S. House of Representatives for a final vote, which is expected Wednesday. One of the bill's proponents is Joe Neguse, a Democrat who represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District. He was recently elected as chair of a subcommittee where he plans to prioritize legislation to protect the environment and public lands. But you might remember him as one of the House impeachment managers who received recognition and praise for his presentation during the trial of former President Donald Trump. And he joins us now. Congressman Joe Neguse, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with your election last month as chair of the U.S. House Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands. You're the first Coloradan and the first African-American to hold this position since it formed more than 200 years ago. I'm wondering what you would like to accomplish in this role, and what do you hope to bring to the position? It is a critically important committee, and in particular, Uh, very relevant to the issues that face our communities in Colorado. As you know, Colorado is home to very diverse, rich uh, ecosystems and treasured public lands. About 36% of our state is public land, and uh, over 50% of my congressional district is federal public land. So Colorado has uh, a large role to play when it comes to the discussions around protecting and conserving our public lands uh, and protecting our environment. And I'm very excited to get to work as the chair of this subcommittee uh, in that regard to bring a Colorado voice to some of these issues, to do what we can to lead on issues like wildfire resiliency and mitigation adaptation, particularly after the terrible wildfire season that our state experienced last year. Uh, In my district, uh, we had two of the state's largest wildfires in our entire state history, both in Grand County, the East Troublesome Fire and the Cameron Peak Fire uh, in Larimer County. So the need to bring federal resources to bear when it comes to wildfire mitigation and prevention and adaptation efforts is uh, hugely important and will be one of my top priorities as the chair, in addition to, as, uh, as I mentioned, preserving and protecting the, the treasured public lands that we have in Colorado that we're so blessed to have and trying to, to do what we can to pass bills like my CORE Act, which would protect 400,000 acres of wilderness in Colorado, to uh, pursue those pieces of legislation and, and move the needle when it comes to conserving our public lands. Now, speaking of wildfires, in February, you held a virtual wildfire summit with scientists, firefighters, emergency managers, and others. What were some of the big takeaways from that, and how will that shape your work in Congress over the next year or two? Well, I'm grateful to the almost 1,000 constituents uh, and stakeholders who joined us for that wildfire summit, really the first of its kind, bringing together Governor Polis, both of our United States senators, uh, Senator Bennett and Senator Hickenlooper, forest management officials, local law enforcement officials, various uh, stakeholders, scientists, all of whom have a vested interest 
in making sure that we do everything we can to uh, beat back the, the terrible wildfire seasons that grow longer and longer with every passing year. And we heard a lot of really interesting and informative, meaningful feedback that will uh, help shape some of the policy prescriptions that we pursue here in Washington. Just to give you a couple of examples, I think it was very clear from the conversations we had that folks want to see science-based, responsible forest management and want us to secure more support for the United States Forest Service uh, and firefighters in particular. Uh, and then also, again, finding bipartisan agreement where we can to address the threat uh, and to mitigate risk. So there are a variety of different programs that we are pursuing uh, as a result of that summit. Uh, one example in particular that we're very excited about is the, the effort to increase the reimbursement for FMAG grants, the federal management agency grants available to local governments to essentially reimburse our localities for the cost associated with fighting these uh, terrible wildfires. And you are also reintroducing legislation to form a 21st century conservation corps. And I wanted to dive into that a little bit for people who aren't yet familiar with that. Can you explain what this idea is about and how it is intended to help support jobs as well as the environment? It's a bold, comprehensive plan that would address really the confluence of multiple crises that we're facing as a country. One, of course, is the reality of the economic disruption that our country continues to experience as a result of COVID-19, with the unemployment rate that at one point was in double digits and, and many families in need of, of help, right, an economic lifeline to address their circumstances as they, as we all, you know, experience uh, the public health emergency created by COVID-19. And then also the challenge, the crisis of climate change, which I believe is the existential threat of our time. And so what our proposal does is attempts to address both of these crises simultaneously by investing $9 billion in a 21st century conservation corps, reimagining the civil conservation corps of the 1930s, which was wildly popular and incredibly successful uh, when implemented by President Roosevelt as part of his New Deal. You can see the remnants of many civil conservation projects across our wonderful state, including, for example, at Red Rocks. Our hope is that we could bring these federal resources to essentially employ hundreds of thousands of young Americans and complete millions in necessary project work on public lands and communities across the country. Uh, these young people would be you know, engaged in work such as trail restoration, reforestation projects, training and, and hiring a new generation of outfitters and, and guides, uh, as well as scaling up a number of important forest service and Department of Interior accounts that, again, address some of the core issues that I mentioned with respect to wildfire resiliency and mitigation. So it is a bold program. It's comprehensive in scope. I'm excited about its uh, chances for inclusion as part of President Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure plan. And uh, me, myself and Senator Wyden, who is the lead Senate sponsor, are going to be working to make that a reality. I'd like to talk to you about another of your priorities. That is helping Colorado recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Can you just briefly talk about some of the bills that you're proposing? Sure. Well, the biggest by far is the American Rescue Plan. President Biden's American Rescue Plan uh, will save lives. It will save livelihoods. It will help us put more vaccines in arms and meet you know, the president's ambitious goal of vaccinating 100 million Americans in the first 100 days of his administration. By investing, scaling up dollars in vaccine distribution, it will help put children safely back in school. There's roughly a $130 billion investment in school reopening and making up for lost learning. 
The bill puts money in people's pockets. Again, that significant economic disruption that folks across Colorado have experienced as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic warrants the action and attention of federal lawmakers. And we are responding by ensuring that uh, many Americans will receive $1,400 stimulus checks, as well as a scaling up of numerous other economic programs to help small businesses on Main Street, uh, and in particular, those businesses in rural parts of our state that have been hit so incredibly hard. Well, about that plan, despite the fact that polling showed most Americans supported this bill, no Republican senators voted in favor of it. I'm wondering what that says to you about divisiveness in Congress. And do you expect that most of President Biden's legislation will only receive support from Democratic lawmakers? I certainly hope not. I mean, I was disappointed that so many Republicans chose not to support this bill when, as you mentioned, it is so broadly supported by the American public. That being said, we're going to move forward with respect to this plan, and then we will turn to the other pressing issues that face our country, including infrastructure needs, the need for comprehensive immigration reform, public land preservation, and more. And I will always work you know, in good faith with anybody who's willing to, to have a conversation about trying to solve some of these problems. And my hope is that folks will meet us halfway and, and we can uh, reach some consensus on some of these really pressing, consequential challenges that we face as a state. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one question about the recent impeachment trial of the former president in which you served as an impeachment manager. Now that that is behind us, um, I'm wondering what was the most surprising thing to happen that you learned or the most interesting or shocking reaction that you received? Basically, is there anything we might have missed from the trial that you can share with us? Yeah, I'm not so sure there's anything that you missed. Obviously, I was, you know, was honored to be selected by the speaker to serve as a manager in the Senate trial to vindicate our Constitution and, and defend our democracy and the peaceful transfer of power. It was a serious and solemn task, but one that uh, I took very seriously and, and one that has not overshadowed our legislative portfolio and the work that we continue to do for the people of the second district. To the extent there were any surprising moments or perhaps I guess moments that uh, rather not surprising, but stood out for me, it would be uh, that ultimately at the end of the day, I think a significant majority of the United States Senate reached the same conclusion that we did with respect to president's conduct. And I think that was evidenced by both the 57 senators who voted to convict, as well as the statements made by uh, several other senators in regards to the ultimate outcome. But look, at the end of the day, as I said, it was an important and solemn responsibility and one that I took seriously. And, and uh, we're now moving forward with addressing so many of these other important issues and challenges. Well, after that trial, your name recognition skyrocketed. Many news publications now regard you as a next generation star. And all of that is to ask, can we expect you to run for Senate or perhaps a higher office in the future? I, I, I am singularly focused on representing the people of my district. And uh, it's a great honor for me to be able to have the privilege to represent and serve people of Boulder and Fort Collins and Broomfield and our Central Mountain communities. And there are no shortage of challenges, as we've just uh, discussed. So that's where my focus is. It is and always has been on the work and on the very busy legislative agenda that we have charted out for our office and for our constituent representatives. Democratic Representative Joe Nagus, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. A bill introduced here in Colorado last month would require higher education institutions to charge in-state tuition costs to any student who is part of a federally recognized tribe that lived within the state. 
About 50 different indigenous nations historically called this region home before it was made into the Colorado we know today. Now there are just two reservations within its boundaries, the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute. Jason Gonzalez is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. He's been reporting on this piece of legislation, which cleared its first legislative hurdle last week. He's with us now to tell us more about the bill and how it fits into the larger recognition of Colorado's past. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Henry. So this is not the first time similar legislation has been proposed here in Colorado to offer in-state tuition to indigenous students, but it's looking like it will have a clearer path this time around. What's important to understand about this current bill? This is a decades-long fight to secure recognition and rights for Indigenous people at universities. What's really significant about this bill, it has prominent House and Senate leaders sponsoring the bill. And before, it's failed numerous times, but this time it really seems to have the momentum going forward. And the momentum started because of students who met with CU Regents last year and explained uh, the issues that Indigenous people in Colorado have been fighting for for a very long time. And that meeting led to those CU regents and the system creating its first ever land recognition statement and then going to its lobbyists and saying, hey, how can we get this before lawmakers? Let's go back to that land recognition statement. What can you tell us about that? So the University of Colorado system has never recognized that indigenous people occupied the lands where CU Boulder, uh, CU Denver, the rest of its schools uh, made their home and, and lived and thrived before they were forcibly moved off of the land. So the system just uh, having talked to the students and, and the, the regents talking to the students really got them thinking about, hey, what do we need to do to ensure that we recognize those uh, indigenous people? And that led to that land recognition that says, this is why we're here and this is uh, these are the lands that we now teach other students on. And what kind of reaction have you seen from students and from schools? Are they supportive of this legislation? Many of the schools really back this bill and say they want in-state tuition for students. The indigenous students who I talked to said schools, if they take up this in-state and, and once this happens, hopefully for them, that they they want to see themselves supported with financial, mental health, and just uh, other resources to help them get through college. But there are schools across the state who are doing uh, things for Indigenous students. Fort Lewis College, which is has its roots as a Native American boarding school, has really shifted to tackle that legacy and ensure that students are supported and a part of the culture and considered in many different ways, including Native American teachings and incorporating them into science and, and philosophy, uh, just to ensure that the students, because it has a very large population, feel supported there and understand that that is home for them. Colorado State has offered in-state tuition to Indigenous students with ties to the state since 2011, similar to this bill, but last year began to offer in-state tuition to all Native American students from federally and state-recognized nations and tribes. So schools are doing uh, some things across the state, but it is limited. Well, lastly, Jason, before we let you go, I wanted to ask about another piece of legislation you're following. This is a bill that would affect standardized testing here in the state. What's the latest on that? The bill to uh, limit standardized testing in the state passed its first hurdle in the House uh, through a second reading on Monday and still has a long road ahead of it. This bill in particular, even more so than a, a bill to cancel all statewide testing, which uh, didn't fit with federal guidelines, this bill just calls the limit 
statewide testing and has a lot of support right now. You know, testing proponents, testing opponents, both sides have come together and said this is a really good bill for the state and would get at helping students and teachers learn throughout the rest of the year, but also try to find some level of benchmark during this pandemic to understand learning loss. Jason Gonzalez is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find links to his reporting on both of these bills at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Last summer, Colorado lawmakers approved cutting $493 million, or 58 percent, from the state's higher education funding to make up for lost state revenue amid the pandemic. When you're in, public colleges and universities are facing budget shortages and considering a variety of cost-saving measures, including raising tuition ahead of the next school year. Now higher education administrators are pushing for the Colorado Joint Budget Committee to restore the funding they cut and work towards a better funding model overall. Henry Sobinet is the chief financial officer for the Colorado State University System. He says if the funding is restored, that will help, but schools will still have to get creative for the next fiscal year. He spoke with KUNC's Amanda Andrews. A number of Colorado's public colleges and universities are facing budget shortfalls. I know some schools are considering raising tuition this summer. So what plans does the Colorado State University system have for tuition and making up for the funding cuts? Are you anticipating tuition will need to be raised? And if so, by what amount? The governor's budget request allowed schools to go up to a 3% increase in tuition for, you know, the school year of 21 to 22. Our board of governors hasn't voted on that yet, and they'll vote on that in probably June. The reasons to do that would be to be able to afford the higher costs that we'll have next year. And it looks like legislature is going to adopt a a cost of living adjustment for state employees. And so depending how enrollment goes and how state funding goes, the tuition revenue will help pay for those extra costs. In contrast to other nearby institutions, the CSU system has largely avoided cutting positions or furloughing employees. How have you navigated this pandemic and managed to avoid doing that? Our board and our executive team wanted to make sure that we didn't make the economic impact of the downturn worse by sending more people into the community without resources and, you know, to lose their jobs. So in addition to the federal funds that we were able to receive, we did some refinancing of debt uh, called scoop and toss financing. And what you do is, is you end up borrowing an amount of money equal to your debt service payments and you extend your debt service payment at the very back end by that amount. So we infused into our system a tranche of money from that financing technique. I was also curious about how the pandemic has changed the budgeting process overall. Are there things that you do now that weren't part of the pre-pandemic process? We also had to kind of reimagine how much money are we going to have? Like, what? How much? how many students will be there? We lost a full season of in-person attendance for, say, the football season. That's a big deal, you know, uh, for the debt service on our stadium. You know, we lost money from people not living in the residence halls. Um, We lost money from people not using the parking garage. Within the year, there's needed to be more check-in. How are things going? Where's money needing to be plugged in? So I think that that has changed. And then, you know, budget planning. Now we have to understand epidemiology. Looking ahead to the fall semester, tell me, what are you expecting and what are you planning for? I think the the big point is we're really keeping an eye on vaccinations because 
we, we think students are going to come back to see their friends, to be, to learn together on campus, to be part of the community. We know that the hybrid model worked well for some students. I bet hybrid learning stays as a part of, of learning going forward. But we also learned that most students who were choosing to be in Fort Collins, they wanted to be there for the entire experience. And so as the vaccines roll out, uh, we'll be able to have what looks like a regular fall semester. That was KUNC's Amanda Andrews speaking with Henry Sobene, Chief Financial Officer for the Colorado State University System. Late last year, the seven states that make up the Colorado River Basin made clear they were ready to start negotiating future policies. The climate-stressed river supplies water for 40 million people across the Southwest. But before the talks can begin, the region's leaders must first decide what's on the table and who will be sitting at it. KUNC's Luke Runyon has more. The last time water managers in the Colorado River Basin did a major policy overhaul in 2007, the 29 tribes in the watershed were left out. And Daryl V. Hill says it was the same for the big agreement before that and the one before that. And there's no process at all in the current structure to have inclusivity of tribes in that process. V. Hill leads the Water and Tribes Initiative and handles water issues for the Hickoria Apache Nation in northern New Mexico. He says for all the talk of consensus building in the watershed, up until now it's only been among a very narrow group of players. Many other perspectives, he says, are ignored or rejected. Who's at the existing table? The existing table in terms of policy in the Colorado River truly is controlled by, you know, the basin states and the federal government. And that has to change, he says, because collectively the tribes hold rights to about 20 percent of the river's flow. Why wouldn't you allow, you know, 29 tribes in the basin who've lived sustainably for thousands of years, they might have something that they, that would be a value in terms of how, you know, how we move forward as human beings. How you set the table has a great deal to do with the outcome of the dinner. Kathy Jacobs oversees the Center for Climate Adaptation, Science, and Solutions at the University of Arizona. The question of who participates is essential, she says, and has to be answered before the talks begin in earnest. And it's not just tribes who've been excluded in the past. Environmentalists, recreation groups, scientists, and the country of Mexico have also been left out. The values of the American public and the values of the people in Mexico who are affected are not completely represented by the people who have historically been part of these conversations. The federal government will play a role in guiding the negotiations, and the new Biden administration has yet to lay out its priorities. So the number of seats at the table is up in the air. So too is the agenda. There will be huge tension between, you know, is this a time to fix the big picture problems? Or is this an incremental step towards doing that? Or is this just a finger in the dike? And there are a lot of big picture problems to deal with. Climate change is impacting the river's biggest reservoirs. Later this year, they're expected to hit their lowest levels since they were built. 
And John Weisheit, the Utah-based director of the environmental nonprofit Living Rivers, says the science is clear. Cities, farmers, and everyone else in the basin needs to use less water. To just keep doing the same thing over and over again is insanity. Weisheit points to studies from the 1980s that predicted looming water shortages. Inconvenient science has been tossed aside by water managers in the past, he says. And if leaders don't take climate change seriously this time around, the system is at risk of failure. So are we going to get smart about this or not? If we don't, then we whatever happens, and we don't know when, but it's going to, we deserve it. With problems piling up, it's understandable why some players are champing at the bit to get the talk started. But University of Nevada Reno political scientist Elizabeth Kobali says some basic questions still need answers. I'm not sure that everyone agrees the system doesn't work in the same way. And I think that that's going to be a really important part of the process. She says certain factors will play an outsized role in determining how the negotiations play out. If the current drought worsens, those at the table might be more willing to take risks. But one thing is certain, Kobali says. The deadline to finish a new agreement is five years from now, and the water supply for 40 million people is on the line. I'm Luke Runyon. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll have more on how researchers are trying to determine whether or not enough people will get the vaccine in your community to keep it safe from future outbreaks. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.